if you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 6. We're in the second half of that book, and we're going to, of that chapter rather, chapter 6. And we're going to look this morning at verses 8 through 15. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. The title of the sermon this morning is Like Jesus. Like Jesus. Acts chapter 6, 8 through 15. Here's what the author, the Apostle Luke, writes. He says this, and Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They, then they secretly instigated men who said... We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like, that, was like the face of an angel. Father, we just uh, are grateful to be able to come together and sing songs to you and to read a, a passage like this where we read just here at the end that Stephen's face in the midst of his preaching and in the midst of being arrested that his face was like that of an angel. And I just pray, God, that this morning as we think about what it's like to worship you and to be a witness for you and to sacrifice for you, that it would all be worth it and it would all be all-consuming in our lives that we treasure Christ over all else. So help us this morning as we look at this great example of Stephen who reminded us even of the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, back in the 1990s, when I was in high school, there was a popular jingle that rang in the heads of young basketball fans around the country, and the song was, If I Could Be Like Mike. Remember that? Little song, the NBA superstar that every kid wanted to imitate, Michael Jordan. He was the catalyst for popularizing the NBA around the world in the 1980s and in the 1990s, becoming a global cultural icon in the process. I mean, he starred in the very first Space Jam movie. How else are you going to become a superstar except getting to do that? Jordan played 15 seasons in the NBA. He won six championships with the Chicago Bulls. He was the leader of the dream team who won the gold medal in Barcelona, 1992. Every young kid in America sought Mike likeness. There were the Air Jordans. There was the sweatband on the left arm. There were the Jordan posters of him defying gravity as he, as he, as he dunked the basketball. And then there was me flying through the air with my tongue stuck out of my mouth, dunking my Nerf basketball. <laughs> Whom did you want to be like when you were a kid? Did you want to become some famous composer 
an actor, a fashion designer? Did you want to be the world's strongest man, fastest runner, or most decorated player? Many children grow up wanting to be like their moms or dads, and that's why when you go to the mall, oftentimes you'll see little kids pushing strollers with their baby dolls in there who are patting them on their back. I've seen my kids, when they were younger, baptizing their toys in the bathtub (laughs) in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But regardless of who your model was as a kid, every Christian adult should seek to imitate the same model. We're talking about, not Stephen this morning, but the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us as Christians wanna be like our savior. It's only right as he's changed us and brought us out of darkness into light, that is he, he's completely regenerated your nature that you now wanna be like Christ. I'm not saying in some divine way like you would be a God. I'm just saying you wanna be like him because you love him and you see what he's done for us. He's the savior of the world and he's the savior of your soul. First John 2, 6 says, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same manner of which he walked. Philippians 3, 10 through 14 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, not that I have already obtained this or have already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see, he's made us his people. He's made us to be like him. He's made us to be little Christs. That's what the word Christian means. And as we're growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus, that ought to be our our dominant theme of life. It ought to be our ambition throughout our time here on earth. And in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, we see a man who was as much like Christ as anybody in scripture up to this point. And I'm talking about this man, Stephen. He was a servant. He was appointed as one of the early deacons. He was a man that was highly revered. And Luke describes Stephen's, describes his Christ-like character, describes his ministry, and it even, he even tells us, as we'll read in our next chapter, about his death. But the real question I want to ask you this morning is not about Stephen, it's about you. When we look at someone like Stephen, we should also wrestle with the question, do you really want to be like Jesus? Because just as I quoted from Philippians 3, to be like him in his life is also to be united with him in his death. So many times we want to be like the superstar part of Jesus that we see who reigns over the heavens and the earth. But oftentimes we're a little bit less motivated to be like him in his suffering, even to the point of death. Do we want to really be like Jesus? It can't mean simply gathering facts about Jesus' life and then copying him, like children idolizing their favorite basketball star. We must not try to be like Jesus in our own power to somehow think that we can earn our own salvation by walking in his footsteps. Rather, as Christians, we must realize that we can pursue Christ-likeness to Jesus because We have been united to Jesus. The only way that we can be like him is because we've been united to him. And only through that union with Jesus can we live out our Christian lives. It's what Galatians 2.20 says, that I am crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who lives, but Christ 
who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Through Jesus, we have victory over sin. Through Jesus, we can live by faith. Only through Jesus can we bear the fruit of righteousness. And Stephen was not sinless like the rest of us. He too needed a savior. And once Stephen repented of his sins and he believed in his heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, he was empowered to live a life that reflected his savior. And as we seek to follow Stephen as he followed Christ, we must first be united to Jesus and be willing to suffer. But the story of Stephen, this story shows us that suffering connected with honoring the Lord and looking into Jesus' face is worth it. It is well worth it to suffer any suffering that God brings in our life to be able to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at our text this morning, I just want to show you four ways that Stephen points us to Jesus. He was empowered like Jesus. Verse 8, he spoke with wisdom like Jesus, verses 9 and 10. He endured trials like Jesus, verses 11 through 14. And then we'll see in verse 15, he displayed God's glory like Jesus. Let's start with number one. It's in your outline if you are taking notes, and you'll see it on the PowerPoint here as well. But he was empowered like Jesus. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, says filled with grace and power. Stephen was filled with grace and power. The beginning of verse 8, and he gave, uh, verse 8, excuse me, says, and Stephen, full of grace and power. We're diving in here in the middle of chapter 6. This verse reminds us about Stephen's character here. But if you'll remember from last week, it was the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking Jews who arose against the Hebrews, the Palestinian Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the apostles had their first church membership meeting, and they decided that they needed to appoint seven godly men to serve the people, while the apostles devoted themselves to prayer and to the preaching of the word. So they picked seven men of good repute, and this means that these were men of good reputation, These were men who were full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And guess who the very first person was that they picked? It was Stephen. Stephen was the very first of the seven. I've told you that the church was likely 20 to 30,000 Christians. And it seems like Stephen's name immediately soared to the top of the list. He was their first choice. If you'll look back at verse 5, it says, And they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And I just want you to see this word full. We see it back up even in verse three. Seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Verse five, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And here we are in verse eight, and Stephen, full of grace and power. Remember that word full means containing all that it can hold. In a second sense, the word full there means to be complete, lacking in nothing. So think about that. Stephen's full. He is full of the Holy Spirit. Remember Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with 
the Spirit. When a person is filled with the Spirit, they're controlled by the Spirit. When a person repents and believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ for their sins, they're born again. And being born again means that you're baptized into the Holy Spirit. That's a one-time event at your justification. But then there's an ongoing, and that's what this verse is talking about, Ephesians 5.18 and here in Acts 6. There's that ongoing, daily, regular filling. Being born again is being baptized, but being filled is an ongoing surrender to the Holy Spirit's work in your life. It's about your progressive sanctification. It's about not walking in the flesh, but walking in the Spirit. That's what God's called us to do. That's the difference between somebody who's walking in obedience and walking by faith and just kind of trudging through their Christian life more out of duty than they are out of someone who is being filled up. And Stephen was a man who was filled up. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was controlled by the Holy Spirit. He was completed by the Holy Spirit. He had all of the Holy Spirit that he could hold. And that's what you and I are supposed to be like, not walking in the flesh, but walking in the Spirit, not doing it in our own strength, but doing it in His strength, not going it alone, but being indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit. And according to verse 5, Stephen was also full of faith, full of faith. This means to have a deep belief, a firm conviction, a hope that was unwavering. And we see here in verse 8 that Stephen was also full of grace and power. The word grace, as you may know, is charis, which means favor or goodwill. It also can lend its way to giving a charitable act or a generous gift. This is what God has shown us in Christ, and this is what we are to show each other in being Christ-like. And Stephen was full. He was just full of it, full of grace He's full of power. The word here in verse 8, dunamai, the idea of having the ability to function in some way, to have might, to have strength, to have force, to have the capability. And the sermon that we're going to see, Stephen, as we look at chapter 7 next week and the weeks beyond, shows us that Stephen was indeed full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith and full of grace and full of power. In that sermon, we'll see how Stephen believed that God ruled over all of history, how Stephen believed that Jesus Christ was indeed the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies, how Stephen believed in the Holy Spirit, how Stephen clearly believed and practiced what we would even read in a verse that came a little later, like Romans 14, 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Well, Stephen showed us an example of that. He just belonged to God. He wanted to serve God, and this was the conviction that he had. And Stephen showed it in that sermon that we'll look at in Acts 7, but he also showed this spirit-filled power in Verse 8, the second part, your next blank, in doing great wonders and signs. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In the New Testament, the apostles performed many signs and miracles, but the only non-apostles who performed signs and miracles by name in the New Testament would be Stephen, Philip, and Barnabas. We read about Philip, if you look over in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs in which he did. So we know that Philip 
The second deacon, if you will, appointed here in the beginning of Acts 6, also performed incredible signs according to Acts chapter 8, verse 6. If you look back a little further in Acts chapter 15, verse 12, we read about Barnabas, who also did miracles, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So we have Philip. We have Barnabas, and in this verse, we have Stephen. Those are the only three men mentioned by name in the New Testament that did uh, miracles other than the apostles themselves. And it says Stephen was doing great wonders and signs. The verb tense here indicates that it was an ongoing action, not a one and done event. This was not a fluke or a misunderstanding. This was Stephen, though he was not an apostle, being given the power to do wonders and signs. And we see Stephen here in verse 5 and again in verse 8 is also a righteous man who was empowered by God to do righteous deeds. He was empowered by God to do these incredible feats that defy nature because he was filled with the power of God. He had a message to preach and God wanted to authenticate his message and the fact that he was a close associate with the apostles who had seen the risen Lord. And so he wanted to authenticate that as the early church shows by these miracles that were done. Incredible things that Stephen did. All all Christian joy and usefulness, and all power and gracious service, all God-honoring works and worship come from a pure heart. Stephen had a pure heart. Stephen did what he did because he was in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen did what he did because he was faithful in his walk, and he was fearless in his testimony. And Stephen did what he did because he was an obedient follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of why God blessed his ministry. It's assumed, it doesn't say it necessarily in the words I just said, but it does say he's full of the Holy Spirit. So we know he's full of a spirit of wisdom, of grace, of power, and of faith. And a righteous man, James 5.16 tells us, availeth much. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Proverbs 15.29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but the hearts of the but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Or how about second? Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world to, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. This is the kind of Christian that Stephen was. He didn't just kind of show up on the Lord's day. He, he didn't struggle with being right in the middle of the presence of God as a daily discipline. He was a godly man. And this is the kind of Christian that you and I should be today. I'm not an apostle You're not an apostle. You may be sitting here and you may be thinking, well, I'm not a pastor and I'm not an elder. But remember, God's called us all to be perfect, Jesus said in in Matthew 5. To be perfect, even as I am perfect. We're to be holy, 1 Peter chapter 1. Even as he is holy, we're to be pursuing Christ-likeness. We should be of good repute. We should be willing to, to, to pursue godliness, which sometimes means we are willing to serve tables. That's what Stephen started off doing, right? They appointed him that he would be serving tables with a daily distribution. We should be full of the spirit and of wisdom. We should be filled with grace and with power. And so Stephen was truly empowered like Jesus. John 1.14 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And you and I can follow in his footsteps if we devote our hearts fully to him. 
Well, let me show you a second way that Stephen points us to Jesus. Number two, he spoke with wisdom like Jesus. So number one, he was empowered like Jesus. Number two, he spoke with wisdom like Jesus. Verses nine and 10, your next blank there in verse nine says, other Jews argued with Stephen. Verse nine, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So you have other Jews that are arguing with him. Synagogue worship seems to have had its roots in the Babylonian exile of the Old Testament. Jews gathered in synagogues to hear the scriptures read and expounded upon, and they became common gathering places, especially in the lands of dispersion where some of the Jews ended up uh, going. Now, the synagogue of the freedmen mentioned here in verse 9 most likely was made up of a, of a Jewish slave group who were captured even possibly by Pompeii and then taken to Rome. But later they, granted, uh, they, were, they were granted their freedom and they formed a Jewish community upon arriving back in Jerusalem. And so what's being listed out here is maybe some various synagogues of some different people groups who were Jewish but had some other ethnic and even language backgrounds as we talked about the Hellenist. Uh, you also read here in verse 9 about the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians. They would have been from the two major cities of North Africa, Cyrene and Alexandria, you might have heard of Cyrene before. It was Simon of Cyrene who carried the Lord's cross on the day of his crucifixion. Uh, Alexandria was the seaport of Egypt there in northern Africa, the leading, one of the leading cities of the time. And these groups uh, had synagogues here in Jerusalem as well. And then we read about Cilicia and Asia here at the end of verse 9. They were located in the western part of modern-day Turkey uh, because of Paul's hometown of Tarsus which was actually located in Sicilia. Many think that he might have attended that particular synagogue while being in Jerusalem. But the point of verse 9, again, is just to show that Jews from different synagogues with various backgrounds and cultures all arose and they disputed with Stephen. This word disputed means they, they argued with him. They disputed, the word there refers not necessarily to a quarrel, but more to a public debate. They wanted to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Stephen to debate these important things about our transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. In fact, some people say that Saul, before he was Paul, if he did attend this particular synagogue from Cilicia, uh, Cilicia rather, may have actually debated Stephen. They might have had a, an incredible debate between Saul and Stephen. The scripture doesn't say that, but some of the commentaries pointed that possibility. But the point is, there was some public debating going on. And some of Stephen's arguments, we can certainly infer from the charges that were brought up against him in verses 13 and 14. We could say, no doubt, this, this debate centered on the death and the resurrection and the messiahship of Jesus. There would have also have been explanations of why the Mosaic law, the temple rituals, and keeping the Sabbath were unable to save anybody. Certainly, this reminds us of the wisdom of Jesus, who had these same type of open debates regularly with the Pharisees. Uh, remember when they came to Jesus, the Pharisees in Matthew 22, listed the cross-reference for you there, verses 17 to 22. They say, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus 
aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to him, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. So we see Jesus openly debating these unbelieving Jews. Stephen's openly debating these unbelieving Jews. And Jesus was filled with wisdom. Divine intellect is on display as our Lord debates with these Pharisees. And this is the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. And to the same degree, this wisdom is, is exactly what Stephen's using. It wasn't his own wisdom. It was the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Certainly you remember the public debate that Christ also was brought into in Luke chapter 20, where it says one day as Jesus was teaching the temple, uh, people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things or who gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Again, time and time again, we see that Jesus' wisdom is superior We see that his words are superior. We see that his ability to reason was superior, that his arguments were superior, that he won every debate that he ever had with the Pharisees. And just like the Jews couldn't refute Jesus, no one could refute Stephen either. That's your next blank. No one could refute the wisdom and the spirit. Verse 10, nobody could refute the wisdom and the spirit, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They couldn't withstand this wisdom, the spirit. The word withstand here in the ESV means to oppose. It means to resist. It means to hold one's ground. The wisdom of this world does not compare with the wisdom of God. Dear Christian, you got to get that in your heart because sometimes you feel intimidated when you're out in the public square. And sometimes when you're trying to evangelize somebody, you might feel intimidated that somehow they have some argument or some rationale or some experience that's going to trump what's in God's word or what God has placed in your heart through his word. And let me just remind you that no one can refute the wisdom of God. Now, they may call it foolishness, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but we know the wisdom of God is not foolish. It is truth, everlasting truth. The lies of the world fall short at the truth of the Bible. And the unbelievers and the haters will one day be reminded, oh Christian, they will one day bow, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't forget about Philippians 2. You hold that in your pocket, and you don't have to bring it out and smear it in their face all the time, you know what I mean? But you just got to understand, you win. The arguments God gives you always win. You're not a fool. You could be the only one in your class that stands up and talks about creation. You could be the only one who steps up and says, a man is a man and a woman is a woman. That's in our DNA. 
You can say that all day long and people are going to look at you like, oh, you're not up with the times. And you tell them, well, you're not up with God's word. <laughs> Boom, come on. You just be ready to go at it anytime you want. Don't be some weak Nimble, dimble Christian. That's not us, people. That's not us. That's not Stephen. That's not Christ. That ought not be us. And so Jesus always was resisting. Uh, Stephen, in this passage, is refuting uh, with the wisdom and of the Spirit. Jesus said in Luke 21, 12 through 15, but therefore, uh, excuse me, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So Jesus had been preparing his apostles for this. And then Luke 21, 13 goes on to say, this will be your opportunity. I love how Jesus says it. He doesn't say, hey, you're going to get arrested. You're going to get taken in front of kings. You're going to go in all these synagogues. You're going to be persecuted. And I'm so sorry that's going to happen for you guys. He's like, no, no. And this is your finest hour. This is your opportunity. This is what you live for. This is why I created you. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I struggled when I read through that this week. I'm like, I thought we're supposed to get ready and meditate on God's word. But he's just simply saying, hey, you may not know exactly what to face, but when you face it, 21:15 of Luke says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Well, we're seeing what Jesus prophesied in Luke 21 is becoming true right here with Stephen. And it can become true in your life. We are not apostles, but we are close associates with the truth of God's word. And you can be empowered like Christ and you can be a great debater like Christ. And I'm not saying everybody's gonna do public debate, but you know what I mean. In your heart, wherever you stand, you can hold your ground. And persecution always gives you and me an opportunity to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Persecution always gives us the opportunity to trust God by faith. We know that persecution gives us the opportunity to say things we didn't even know we knew. You ever been there? You're all of a sudden in a conversation and you're like, I'm not sure and I want to get more prepared, obviously, but all of a sudden God just gives you something to say. And you're like, thank you, Holy Spirit. That was from the Lord. I did not even know how I was going to answer that. And it's not pride, people. It's just like, man, I'm just so thankful God showed up because if he didn't show up, I was going to get pancaked. But you know what? He showed up and he just reminded me of his truth. He reminded me that I'm not in error. He reminded me that I'm a blood-bought child of the king. He reminded me of where I'm going when I die. He reminded me that he is a loving God and that I'm to call people with grace and truth out of darkness and into light. And Jesus says it again in Luke 21, 15. In that day, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I love it. So we see Stephen is pointing us to Christ by being empowered like Jesus, by speaking with wisdom like Jesus. And number three, he endured trials like Jesus. Verse 11, your next blank says, accusations of blasphemy. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak of blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
They are now accusing Stephen of saying blasphemous things against Moses and against God. Basically, if anything was said that went against the, Jewish's, the Jews' worship of the Old Covenant or of their heritage, they took it personal. And you have to understand that those opposing Stephen were still living in the Old Testament. They were still living under the Old Covenant, which included circumcision, which included specific dietary laws, which included specific civil laws. It included an idolatrous worship of the Sabbath, and it was not even true Old Testament Christianity. What they were holding on to was a system of legalism. It was legalistic Judaism. And this was a, a works-based salvation. This was an unhealthy worship of Abraham and of Moses and of the old covenant all over and above the Lord Jesus Christ and his teachings. That's why they crucified him. They hated him and they didn't like what he taught. They just held on to the Old Testament and over time their view of the Old Testament had become skewed. It had become warped. It had become man-centered. It had become focused on the externals and not on the heart. And so these unbelieving Jews denied that Jesus was the Christ. And they denied that salvation was by grace through faith. And they denied the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they accused Jesus of blasphemy too. The Jews asked Jesus, do you think you are greater than our father Abraham. That's what they said to Jesus. They said, what sign will you do that will make us believe in you? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Moses gave them bread to eat. And of course, we know that Jesus is greater than Abraham. We know that Jesus is greater than Moses. We know that Jesus circumcises our hearts, that Jesus is the bread of life, and that whoever comes to him will never hunger, and whoever believes in him will never thirst. We see the accusations of blasphemy brought against Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 to 64, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. So the high priest of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, called Jesus a blasphemer because he claimed, Christ did, to be indeed the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. And so the Jews believed that he deserved death. And Stephen was accused of the same type of blasphemy because of his words, which were pointing the Jews away from the old covenant to the new covenant. He was pointing away from, uh, from Moses and, and their skewed perception of God. And he was pointing to God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all these reasons, he was, your next blank, dragged before the council. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. The word stirred up here means that they incited, they aroused the crowd. Having ignited a negative sentiment towards Stephen, the crowd now comes and seizes him and they bring him before the council. Sound familiar? It's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was seized. 
He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just like Stephen, Jesus had done nothing wrong. He had simply preached the gospel and called people to repentance. And just as they dragged Stephen before the council, they brought Jesus before the authorities as well. In John chapter 18, verses 12 to 13, it says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And then we read a few verses later in John 18, 19 to 24, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so we just see passages, again, that, uh, that show us a, a similarity, several similarities in what Jesus faced and what Stephen is now facing and what you and I should expect to face as we live our life also for Christ. They were both accused of committing blasphemy. They were both arrested and brought before the authorities. They were both publicly rebuked for preaching the gospel, and they both had false witnesses that came against them. Verse 13, false witnesses. We read about it there where it says, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. A false witness is someone who is bringing a testimony which is contrary to the truth. These people were lying. They were speaking things that were not true to condemn the person whom they did not like. And again, the exact same thing happened to Jesus. Matthew 26 verse 59 says, now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they may put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. We also read in Mark 14, 55 through 56, now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. They were false witnesses, not because they put words in Stephen's mouth, but because they twisted what he did say. Commentator F.F. Bruce writes this on the passage, quote, they are called false witnesses as those who brought a similar testimony against Jesus are called, but in both cases, the falseness of their testimony consisted not in wholesale fabrication, but in subtle and deadly misrepresentation of words actually spoken. In other words, They didn't invent bold-faced lies out of thin air. They simply twisted the truth. They bent the truth. 
They mastered the art of taking some of the words that were said and distorting them to make them mean something else. You say, like what? Well, listen to what the false witnesses said, your next blank, verse 14, by talking about how they taught that they were going to destroy the temple and do away with Old Testament customs. Let's spend a little time examining these arguments. This is what they said they said, that they were going to destroy the temple and do away with Old Testament customs. For we've heard him say, verse 14, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. We've got to examine their testimony to see if is it true. Did Jesus say that? Did Stephen say that? The, the Jews began by associating Stephen with Jesus of Nazareth, and you can almost hear them saying it. You you remember, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. This Stephen is with Jesus of Nazareth. It's a condescending term. Nazareth was that smaller rural town in northern Israel that was thought of as being backwards by the Institute Religion of Judaism in Jerusalem. They thought of it as being backwards and uneducated, and they were not up on the cultural convictions of the time, reading the latest rabbis and catching up with all that was in the Talmud or in the Mishnah and other writings that were being uh, maybe released. And so today, uh, there may be people who would say of you, oh, oh, you believe in that Jesus of the Bible. Oh, you're one of those Christians Oh, you're one of, those, you're one of those, those Christians who takes the Bible literally. Oh, you believe in that man who lived in the ancient world. You, you really don't take the Bible to be true for today, do you? I mean, there's all kinds of things they're going to say that sound condescending. And the first accusation that the false witness brought up was that Jesus had said something about destroying the temple. The same accusation was brought up about about Stephen and about Christ. And so uh, it was brought up about Jesus in Matthew 26, 61. And they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. But they misunderstood. If you remember, they completely misunderstood what Jesus had said, which was actually explained earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. If you want to know what Jesus said about destroying the temple, this is what he said. John 2, 19 and following says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So in this passage, Jesus did not say, that he was going to destroy the temple. He said, in essence, if you destroy the temple, and he wasn't even referring to King Herod the Great's temple, second temple Judaism, he's referring to his own body. If you destroy the temple, referring to his own body in the crucifixion, that he would raise it up in three days, referring to the resurrection. So Jesus never said anything about how somehow he was going to destroy the temple. Now it is true that in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and in Mark chapter 13, let me read Mark, Mark 13 too, says, Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he does allude to the fact the temple, the physical temple actually will be destroyed. And we know the history tells us from Josephus and other historians that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. That's a true historical fact. And as far as 
As far as we can tell, though, Jesus never talked about he himself would destroy the temple. So they took something that was said, twisted it, and made him say something that he didn't say, and now they call him a blasphemer. We also know, as far as the other argument was at the end of verse 14, that he'll destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So as far as changing the customs of Moses, Jesus didn't come to change them. He came to fulfill them. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Stephen wasn't preaching that the customs which Moses had given should be changed. He was arguing that the customs that Moses gave were perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came, he perfectly fulfilled the law. And all the customs of Moses and all the teaching of the Old Testament was all to point to Christ. And the customs of the Old Testament were merely a shadow of the real thing. Or as the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 8, 5, and 6, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So we're simply talking here about a transition from old covenant belief to new covenant belief. The old covenant was fulfilled and therefore expired in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Stephen didn't come to change what Moses taught. He came to say that what Moses taught has been fulfilled. And no longer are we to abide in this old covenant because now we have ongoing revelation that was prophesied about the new covenant prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 31, Ezekiel chapter 26, all point to this. And now Christ has fulfilled this in the new covenant. So this is what, what they're saying is skewing everything, trying to make it sound like it's, it's going to be Stephen against Moses. That's not what's going on. It's not Stephen against Mo Moses was true in what he said. Stephen is true in what he said. But that's what these unbelievers do. They want to somehow take everything and change it. And, and, and Stephen never preached that. He, he, he also didn't preach, keep looking to Moses to tell us about the Messiah. He preached, look to the Messiah and listen to the Messiah and see the Messiah and come to know the Messiah as the only way to heaven. And the joy of walking in obedience to God comes from that rest that Dave talked about this morning in their worship time. That, that's how you see God. You got to enter into the rest. And the rest is the grace that God provides through Christ. The rest is not you and I trying and striving to somehow keep the law perfectly. The law is only a tutor to lead us to Christ. That's what it's all about. And so he's talking here, Stephen, about the freedom we have in Christ. He talked about how to love God, how to serve others. So how did Stephen point us to Jesus? Number one, he was empowered like Jesus. Number two, he spoke with wisdom like Jesus. Number three, he endured trials like Jesus, including these false accusations. And then number four, he displayed God's glory like Jesus. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Love, 
Love, love this verse, reminding us of Stephen's countenance as it was all going down, as his, dis- his display was uh, like the face of an angel. I'm saying here in your next blank, this is kind of like the reflecting of the glory of Moses. And the only reason I mention that is there's such a powerful testimony of Moses' own countenance. In fact, why don't you just turn there with me, Exodus chapter 34, verse 27 Just reminding you as you turn there that when they're gazing here in Acts 6, when they're gazing at Stephen, they didn't see a grimace. They didn't see a stern look. They didn't see someone who was angry or frustrated or bent out of shape. They saw the face of an angel. And surely Stephen was basking in the joy of his own newfound faith in Christ. It affected his words and it affected his actions and it affected his countenance. It's got to remind us again of what happened here to Moses in Exodus 34, 27 and following. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words for in one, uh, excuse me, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai. God's giving him the 10 commandments, verse 28. He was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread or nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, and as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. This this was not some type of special, glamorous, you know, R&F skin moisturizer, right? This is the presence of a holy God dwelling in the face of Moses when he came down. He didn't even realize that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. Beautiful story about Moses' transformation to some degree when he was in the presence of the living God. So basically, Moses goes to the mountain or he goes to the tent and he hears from God. And when he comes to tell the people as a mediator between God and man of the old covenant, And he comes to tell the people what he learned and what God had revealed to him. His face is shining. When Moses met with God and then shared with the people of Israel what God had revealed to him, his face was shining. And in the same way, when Stephen had met with God and then shared with the Jews what God had revealed to him, his face was like that of an angel. Moses and Stephen were both reflecting God's glory. Does your face shine when you talk to people about Jesus. I was saying that Stephen didn't have some mean look on his face. You know, when you talk about some of the fundamentalists, they're up there preaching and snorting and spitting. 
And I'm just as good as anybody, hopefully, in preaching hellfire and damnation. You've heard that from this pulpit. But there's also, hopefully, and and I'm talking about myself here, but I'm just saying the preacher of the word of God ought to have a, a radiant, glorious face. When you're sharing the gospel with your friends, you shouldn't have that scowl like you want to just eat them for lunch. You should be happy that you have the privilege of being a mediator, of being a testifier, of being an evangelist, of being an ambassador, of representing Christ. There ought to be joy. You ought to be so joyful. I'm not talking about some fake smile either, okay? This is not TBN. I think, is that channel still on? It's out by now, isn't it, Joe? You don't, you don't watch it anymore, do you? Okay, that's good. Uh, you know, but it's not like that fake Christian smile, right? It's that, it's that just, I've been changed. I'm so thankful that Christ saved me. I want to share with you, even in the difficult debate that we talk about that can happen, you want to reflect the glory of God. There's love and there's grace and there's mercy. Are people affected by your joy and your passion for the glory of Christ? Stephen reflected this glory of Christ. Not only that, your next blank says, reflecting the glory of Christ. He reflected kind of the similar experience with Moses, but there's another experience we could look at, the experience Christ had, but there's a difference. There's a difference in reflecting the glory of Christ. I'm talking here about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The difference is, is that Jesus did not reflect the glory of God. He radiated the glory of God. Moses is a reflection Stephen is a reflection. Jesus was the real thing. He radiated radiated from his own being the glory of God. He didn't have to reflect God's glory. He was God in the flesh. Those um, transfiguration passages say, Matthew 17, 2, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Mark 9, 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Luke 9, 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And all those passages refer to how it's basically renewable energy source. It's not reflecting, it's producing energy from who he is in his very nature, fully God and fully man. And so we see here, This sermon in so many ways has shown us how Stephen is really following in the footsteps of Jesus. And every Christian should want to be like Christ. You will never be able to be like Michael Jordan, okay, or LeBron James or whoever it is that you idolize as a sports fan. But you know what? You actually can become like Christ. And the reason, again, is because he lives inside of you. That you, when you repent of your sins and you're filled with the Spirit, you're filled with that same resurrection power that filled Christ. You will never be a God, let me be clear, but you will be like Christ in the sense of you can have the same glory, the same power, the same ability to a degree to represent everything Christ represented. But you've got to be willing to lay everything down. You got to be willing to abandon it all. You can't just identify with Christ in his glory. You must identify with him in his suffering. And that's what Stephen is going through. He's right in the middle of being arrested. In the next few weeks, we'll see this sermon that he preached and how at the end, uh, maybe you thought that his face only radiated after he preached his sermon. To be honest with you, that's kind of, I was like, oh yeah, I thought that was kind of like at the end of Acts 7. Here it is in Acts 6. He's like radiating at the beginning throughout the sermon, and he's radiating even more when he sees Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. 
If you're here today and you don't know the Christ that we're talking about, I want to invite you into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you to be able to see Christ in all of his glory. And that that means that you have to be willing to listen to the voice of God as he has spoken to us today through his word, calling each and every one of us to repentance and faith in him. If you're here this morning and you're afraid or you're living in sin or you have uncertainty after I uh, close in prayer and we sing a final song, we'll have some people in the back by these doors who would love to talk with you about how you could come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you're here this morning and you just need prayer and encouragement, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to minister to you in any way that we can. It's our desire that we as a church would be like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word and to just read and listen about Stephen. And we know he's just a man. And we know that he had imperfections, as we all do. But we just love the example that we see here today, that his face would be like that of an angel, that he would be fearless in preaching the gospel, that he was careful in his articulation, as we'll see uh, between Old and New Covenant uh, truths. And uh, God, that he just wanted to stand for you. God, help us to be the same way, Lord. Help us to want to be like Christ, to preach the word, both in public and in private, to have no fear and no shame. Thank you that you promise us, Jesus, to give us the words, to give us the mouth and the words in our mouth to speak in that day when we need it. And I pray that today, God, you would fill us with your joy, fill us with your peace, protect us from the evil one, purify our hearts, Help us to love you with all that we are and that that love would be manifested in our witness for you, in our worship of you, and in how we serve each other. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.